Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we could come together. We thank you for the, the heat. We didn't have heat until, uh, closer to Christmas, and now we have the heat in here. And we thank you that the school is so accommodating to us. And thank you that you've given us this place to honor you one day in seven as a people of God. Please, uh, we ask that your spirit lead and guide us and that uh, you, your revealed word will help us understand more fully who you are and appreciate you and live out a life that demonstrates that. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay. So, um, uh, we are in the series, A Biblical Theological Introduction to the New Testament. We're in the third book of the, oh, look at that. I still have class one listed up there. Nicholas, Nicholas, Nicholas. It should say class three. In fact, I think I'm going to ditch that whole class system so I never have to make that mistake again. Um, and we are in the book of Luke. And this particular um, author is Robert J. Cara. And uh, um, if you'll notice, on the front page, you'll see some red font. And then on the back page, you know, it's, it's, always, it's bolded and it's all uh, scripture. On the back page, you, we have three more series of that. So what I'm going to do, instead of have the mic go around, or instead of trying to chase people down um, and, and have them do it, I'm going to ask four people to volunteer for the four sections of text that are bolded. The first one is on the front page, and then there's three on the back page. Who would like to volunteer? And no one's going to fault you if you're taking time to get to the text. It's just need one person, and I think it'll be more efficient that way. So who'd like to take underneath the, uh, or on the first page, that particular area of text? Okay, uh, Stephen Alt is going to do that. On the back, on the top there, who would like to take that uh, series of texts? Where are my men? There we go. All right, um, Jamie, we've got you on that. And the, the middle, the the middle portion there of the page. That okay, uh, Bill, we got you there. And the last one there, we can. All right, wonderful. We got Selva with that. Um, all right. So with that, my goal is to bring out the information so we know what's going on, and then hopefully when we get to some of the bolded text areas, we can depending on time, get into some, a little bit of discussion. I'll pose some questions along the way. All right, so as you'll just follow along with me, the author is Luke, the beloved physician. Uh, he's named that in Colossians 4.14. Uh, he was most likely a Gentile known as a God-fearer. Um, and in fact, uh, Acts 13.16 talks about um, when Paul is uh, preaching, it, present with the Jews are the God-fearers. Uh, Luke may have been uh, a, a part of that uh, group of the God, God fears that could hear, that could listen to that. And then the date, oh, actually, I'm, oh no, there's actually a couple of the facts I want to share. The Gospel of Luke is the longest book in the New Testament. So those who like trivia, there's your trivia, as well as the next one as well. Luke's authorship spanning the Gospel of Luke and Acts that you might be surprised by this, makes up 27.5% of the New Testament. This is just based on words, not chapters. While Paul's writing contribute 23.4. How many would have answered Paul has the, the most uh, in there? Yeah, yeah, and it's actually Luke. Um, okay, the gospel was written in, in the 80s, 50s, or 60s, which lines up with what um, Alan Black, David Alan Black, in his book with, uh, that Pete mentioned, and I mentioned the first week, that we really follow that line of understanding of when the authorship took place of the book, so that's encouraging to see that. The audience. Uh, there's an individual audience, and then there's a greater audience. Sweetheart, do you have a, a, a handout? Did you, I, didn't, I don't know that I got you one. Okay, good. 
That would be my wife for those who are listening uh, to this, not in presence, and my sweetheart is not another sister in Christ. That would be my only sister in Christ who I'm married to. Uh, there we go. All right, the individual audience is Theophilus, a Roman official of some sort, who was possibly a recent con uh, converted Christian. Um, and the greater audience of the church was also in view, particularly as he speaks about the church. You'll see Luke is really, he writes his in a bent towards non-Christians. Uh, Theophilus, a Roman, would have been a non-Christian. He, he's trying to confirm his faith. Yes, this, you are right in what you believe. Let me bear out that in this gospel. So um, sometimes it's pointed out that most likely Theophilus is the financer behind this because it would require uh, the, writing, the parchment to write it down on, all of the travel and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I'm, I'm not as familiar with that side of things, so I'll just throw that out there as a possibility. The purpose. Uh, the content of the book relates primarily to the person and work of Jesus from his incarnation to his ascension. Hence, the explicit purpose is to confirm Theophilus and others in their Christian faith by presenting a historical account of Jesus. So sometimes people will claim to be Christians and really all they have is a historical account that's, that was me. That's my story. I had a history of, of, of religion and Jesus, but I did not have a personal relationship. I had no connection for a need to, to a savior. I was just studying about God's son. I wasn't engaged in a relationship where I recognized that I have no righteousness upon my own. He was my savior. Now, the flip side to that, we Christians can sometimes go, all we need is the grace of God, and we really don't need to understand all the historical side of it. That just turns us into bookworms. And we have to say, no, 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 no. We don't want to go that route either. It's ex extremely important. Our religion is not blind faith. Our religion is founded in the history of what God has done here on earth, and in particular through his chosen people. So we want to make sure that you can see Luke's point here is to give a historical account because history is valuable in us understanding our faith and who are, in particular, who our God is. Okay, so let's look at the structure and the outline. I did not see these parallels in uh, bullet point one under John the Baptist and Jesus parallels. Fascinating. Uh, it should say, that's so interesting, because I know I fixed it, but I must have gotten a different version. That should say, Gabriel is sent to Zechariah and Mary, so not Bariel. <laughs> Get rid of that. That would be an error. Gabriel is sent to Zechariah and Mary. Both Zechariah and Mary are troubled. So we can see the parallels there. Gabriel says to both, fear not, and furnishes the names of John and Jesus. Both Zechariah and Mary are told that their children will be great. John is to be a prophet, and, a, and Jesus a king and a son. And really, Jesus is also a prophet. We'll talk more about that. Both Zechariah and Mary question the announced pregnancies, with both births being miraculous, but not equally miraculous. Jesus' birth, we could say, is much more so because you know, we have the Holy Spirit uh, uh, bringing about the actual uh, pregnancy. The lineages of parents are given, although with significantly more detail for Jesus. John will baptize with water, and Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Why do you think there is parallelism going through this? Why would that be important? And, and, and Mark, this is where I'm sorry about that. I told you I was probably going to. 
Um, and this, this is actually a difficult theological question. So if, you, if hands don't go up, that's okay. I understand that. If, I mean, um, I was always that guy in school that I wanted to make sure I was on the right track before I ever dare speak out. You don't have to do that in here. This is a safe place. Um, John the Baptist actually forged the path that Jesus eventually followed. So I'm not sure I call them parallels, maybe forerunners. So there's a, a, a I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build on that. He is the one that clears the way. It's the, uh, make known uh, the, the Savior is coming. Make, uh, get to that place of repentance where you're ready for the Savior. So there's, a, there's certainly a, you could say, when you say moving forward, there's a duality where both are moving down this path and one is clearing, preparing the hearts to receive the Savior. So that, that's good. Anybody else? Uh, we got uh, Sean right here. Yeah, this is right off the top of my head, but, uh, you know, when you have this kind of um, parallelism or maybe um, typology in some respect, uh, it solidifies the validity of the truth that's being taught, I think, as well. It's, it's even more certain, right? Uh, it, it seems. Like, you receive it as that. Like, oh, you know, this is no, none of this is chance. None of this is, um, it's all very well designed and planned. And it's wonderful. For his Jewish audience, oh, uh, it looks, looks like, uh, go ahead, Janet. I'm not sure I'm thinking clearly about this, but isn't there a verse that talks about John the Baptist being the last of the old covenant and Christ issuing in the new covenant? So we have the last old, old covenant, uh, Old Testament saint would be John the Baptist. Excuse me, not saint, prophet. Um, and uh, um, so, yes, there's certainly that component, too. So you have the, 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 the life is the hinge pin between the old prophets and the new prophets, Jesus Christ. And there's that hinge in between, which is Jesus' life itself. So no, that's a great, great uh, visual as well. I didn't think about that one. Um, oh, we got Glenda back there. It's kind of fun. I, you know, I, theologically, it took me a second. He didn't give the answer to this, by the way. So when he laid this out, I don't like when, it's, when uh, people do that, when they lay out something and they don't give a reason for why they laid it out. So it caused me to go, why is there parallelism, parallelism here? Well, they were both involved in salvation in the fact that um, John's ministry was a repentance of sin, and so they had to repent of their sins. Uh, then Jesus came and, I don't want to say close the deal, but he finished it as far as repent of your sins and believe in me. So they, they were, I see maybe a little connection no, there. Great. So there's a, there's a connectedness there. And maybe parallelism or a parallel is the wrong word because it's almost sounding like tandem. You know, like two axles. You have a front axle and a back axle on a, on a, on a trail and they work in tandem versus parallel. Um, I, I think tandem might help me think through this, because so, I agree, they work together in presenting what needs to be presented at this time. If For his Jewish audience, Luke is helping them see that John is in fact, because he's connected to Jesus and there's, there's this tandem or parallelism happening, he is the one that was spoken of that was, uh, was uh, the one who came in the spirit of Elijah, not the physical Elijah. The Jews were looking for the physical Elijah to come, and we're told he's the spirit of Elijah come. And we can see in the parallelism, the connecting that's being made, that yes, these are the two that are hitched together that make up the, this new work, this new co coming covenant 
that Christ is ushering in by way of what he's going to do in his righteousness and then what he's going to do for atoning for our lack of righteousness in his death. So I think all of that has some significance to it. So now when you read Luke, look for the parallelism. By the way, there was probably two or three more paragraphs of parallelism that I just had to say I can't put in here. We don't have enough text to go over it. It was fascinating to see so much connectivity. All right, let's look at the Galilean ministry. Jesus is presented as a preacher, healer, and prophet. Fascinating. That's what the Messiah has to be according to the Old Testament. And so we see that. If you didn't catch that before, you'll, you'll see that hopefully now. As a preacher, Jesus will proclaim the good news. The uva, u, oh, Pete, help me out. Uvangel, I can't even say it in the, in the uh, Greek now. Uh, Evangelia. There you go. I always want to say ooh and it's e. All right, so he, he's pro- pro- proclaiming the good news, which is proclaim liberty to the captives and proclaim the year of the, the Lord's favor. Um, and we see the proclaim liberty to the captives. Do you see that echoing all the way back to our Exodus passage? He's not just freeing physically people from slavery. He's freeing all of mankind that repents and believes from their slavery to sin. So there we have the, the captives uh, uh, picture uh, going on there, how he advances that message. Um, and then uh, the next paragraph, Jesus' healings are connected to Luke 4.18. By the recovery of sight of the blind, this is strongly connected to Luke 7.22. This is, this is kind of uh, geek out stuff for those of you who, who like stuff, uh, like English words or like words or English or languages. The verb sozo, that's how you would pronounce that, and that's what it looks like in the Greek. I left it that way, and that's how you'd pronounce it in the English which has a semantic range of physical healing to a spiritual saving. What does the, that mean, Nick? What does semantic range mean? That means, unfortunately, when I started taking languages, I hoped that a word would always mean the same thing every time I see it, and it doesn't work that way. And she would go, ah, well then how, what, where do I get its meaning from? I have to get the meaning from the context of all the other words around it, and the book it's in, and the testament it's in, so in order to get it right. So we don't have a one for one. Selva, when you're translating into your native tongue from English, you don't always get a one-for-one, do you? No, you've got to use different words to try and communicate that word. Well, so words have range of meanings um, oftentimes. Well, we know that. Um, So that soma is used in the Bible to mean either all the way from physical healing to spiritually saving. And if you don't recognize that and you import into it each time, it means phys, uh, spiritual saving, you'll miss it. Or the other way, if you only say it's uh, healing, you'll miss when it's, a, it's an actual spiritual situation, um, and you'll miss it. So um, I just want to make sure we're kind of a, a hermeneutic there, that we see that this, there is a range of meanings and words. So Luke uh, 4, 17 and 18 also emphasizes... Oh, you know what? I didn't stop on my, my sentences above. Let me finish that. The verb sozo, which has a semantic range of physical healing to spiritual saving, is used often in Luke with one of, of the other nuances. So let's look at this. So who was going to read? So, right, Stephen, thank you. So listen to some of these ranges that we're getting here on this same word every single time. But in your English, you're going to hear it differently because the translators have taken the time to bear that out. So Luke 6, 9. Luke 6, 9, and Jesus said to them, 
I lost my place. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? To save life or to destroy it. Was he saving life or was he doing healings? So we, you, could, you could see that there's, there's something going on there with that. There's, some, there's a range of understanding. Now let's go to 750. 750. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Okay. He was, um, I'm going to, there's some of these, unfortunately, require a little bit more on that. With the 750, um, he's dealing um, with that one in particular with the, uh, <clears throat> the sinful woman. He actually before that says that, she is, he forgives her sin. So there, because of the context of what was before it, we know he's not saving her physically. There is a spiritual component it's, it's purposely dealing with here. All right, 836. And those who had seen it told, told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. So he saved him from demon. Kara uh, likes the word... Uh, Suppression over oppression or possession, meaning that the, the, a demon inside of him, well, de he's casting out a demon. So I just want to make sure we understand that um, he's saving him from the powers of darkness, having control over him. So you have that. That doesn't necessarily mean he's saved salvifically in faith. It means that Jesus removed the demons out of him. So we can't import too much into that. Let's keep going. Uh, seven, oh, excuse me, uh, 850. Do you want 848? Oh, is it 848? Sorry eight, about that. Eight, go for it. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And then uh, 850. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. I'm trying to catch up. Sorry about that. Hey, hang on one sec, second there. Okay, and that's dealing with the, the actual physically dead daughter. So here he saves her life, her physical life is what he's saving uh, uh, there. So keep going on with uh, 1719. What's that? Did I miss it? We did 50. Go ahead, 1719. Uh, 1719. And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Nicholas, I thought I would remember these more. It's one of the lepers. There you go. Um, so it's dealing with physical healing. Thank you. Appreciate that. I thought uh, after studying it yesterday, they just be cemented in my mind and where the text was and which was it was. And it was, it was, that was not the case. Sorry about that. All right. So I just want you to see, we got to be careful. Thank you for that. Sometimes you'll hear, I don't do a very good job of saying, I need to clarify. Sometimes I'll say things like, I think a better trans, well, that's even nice. Sometimes I don't come across as clear to say the Bible's not wrong. Sometimes the translators are struggling to translate in as few as words as possible, and so we lose the clarity. So just know that when we see that uh, saving, that we, that we need to see the context of what's going on in, in order to understand the saving. Okay, let's continue on. Luke 17, excuse me, Luke 4, 17 to 18, also emphasizes that Jesus is a prophet. And you might go, huh? The quote itself is from Isaiah, a prophetic book, and more specifically, Isaiah 61, which is one of the suffering servant songs, 
In fact, the suffering servant, excuse me, the suffering slash rejected prophet motif, which then moves to the suffering rejected Messiah, that's in the book of, of uh, Isaiah, is a significant theme in Luke. So we can see what is happening to Jesus' life was, was already prophesied in Isaiah. So we can see it's emphasizing what's happening to him as a suffering servant. We could look at that and go, oh, that's what Isaiah prophesied. That would happen to this prophet. The one that was bringing the truth is being rejected as a prophet. And he's even being rejected as the son of God, the Messiah, the one who's going to save him to a higher status above that. But we can see that, that truly Jesus is the only one that came as preacher, healer, and prophet. You might say as well, king, as well as in there. All right, we'll continue on. Journey to Jerusalem. The Journey to Jerusalem section is also commonly called, I had not heard this, and Pete, you may have said, referenced this when you were teaching through Mark, and I, it just didn't stick, unfortunately, in my mind. Sometimes things just don't stick. Uh, but the, to be called the travel narrative, Pete, did you reference it that way? No, we call it on the way. On the way, okay. Great, another great way of saying it. This section in Luke is much longer than its parallels in Matthew and Mark. That is primarily because it presents more of Jesus' teaching. The overall point is that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to complete his work, which includes his rejection. When I grew up, I was taught Jesus is an example, and when, he, and when you get to uh, Jesus' persecution and his ultimately being crucified, it was the bad Jews that did that, and that was never intended, don't act like or, or be a Jew. That's what I was taught as a, quote, Christian. So Jews were bad because they killed Jesus. So what Luke is making sure that everyone understand is that this is part of God's plan. Do you see that? So this is part of what Jesus came to do is to die on the cross. That wasn't a, oh boy, they, they cut him short. He was going to be king and they just, they cut him off from his political reign. Okay. Um, the triumphant entry through ascension. Uh, as in the other three Gospels, a large percentage of loose Gospel narratives, Jesus last week, which is the climax of, the, of his work. In other words, you see a lot of it dealing with the triumphal entry uh, through ascension. The triumphal entry is when he finally makes it back into Jerusalem, and the week he stays and he, he interacts in Jerusalem with the people in Jerusalem, and then finally ends up dying, and then it finally, we see him, we'll, we'll deal with him, and particularly in Luke, the, the Road to Emmaus, anybody familiar with that? That terminology? Okay, the road to Emmaus where he shows himself to these two that are walking back after Jesus. They have come to Jerusalem to honor the Passover. They're walking home now after going there. And Jesus um, comes alongside them in their journeys. And he explains everything to them as he's walking along. And they, they, the, the men will say, didn't our hearts burn? as he explained everything to us. Just the, the beauty of how God, Jesus is connecting the Old Testament to him. Um, so there's, that's the triumphant, triumphal entry through his ascension unto heaven. Okay, message in theology, salvation. Luke uses the Greek words for savior two times and the word for salvation six times. This is fascinating. Whereas Matthew or Mark never uses these terms. So he's trying to get the, these Gentiles to connect Savior or salvation to Jesus. He doesn't want them to miss it. Luke includes the traditional Reformed personal and spiritual dimensions of 
justification, sanctification, and glorification, but as Reformed theology also teaches, God's work of salvation is broader. So he's going to, now that the author is pointing out that salvation isn't just tied to this. There are also other earthly components to salvation. Let's see if uh, we, we, we can bear those out. All right, on the next page. For Luke, salvation is a broad word that assumes difficulties with difficulties and sin and asserts deliverance and restoration through Christ. All of those are the theological components. It has both present and future eschatological. Eschatological is a 25-cent word theologians love to use. It just means the last days. That's what eschatological, dealing with the last days events. Uh, uh, and future eschatological aspects. Salvation is part of God's plan. It often has Davidic covenant, that's the covenant with David as king, overtones, and is promised to all groups, including Gentiles. Thank, thank you, Jesus, that you included that message to Gentiles. Forgiveness of sins is a central component, and this is where I wanted to get into, uh, but healings, we don't need to, we already saw that, Demons, suppression, there's his, he likes the word suppression over oppression or uh, possession. And we already dealt with that one. And then he talks about personal and social reversals. Salvation as personal and social reversals. This is where righteousness changes unrighteousness in a community. So let's read that. Um, Luke 117. Who is it? It's, uh, there you go, Jamie. This is not a social gospel. This is, the, this is the logical, theological outcome of when a community acts according to the covenant workings that God has laid out for it. You will see changes in that community. So go, let's go ahead. 117. Oh, I don't hear you. It could just be my ears. <laughs> not the best ears. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Uh, all right. So we see the, the hearts, you see the writing of the hearts of people, even relational writing of the hearts uh, within the context of the family. Let's keep going. Uh, personal, excuse me, 19.9. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. That does not sound like what I prepared for. Let me see if I've got that too. Make sure we're on the same. Oh, you got it. Uh, yes, you are right. But the reason I didn't have it is this is Zacchaeus. This is Zacchaeus who he's talking to. Zacchaeus is a tax collector. And where is he in the tax collecting system? He's at the top of it. He's getting a piece of everybody's cut all the way up the chain or down the chain, however you look at it. He is a fraudster. He is somebody who is oppressing the people by taking a cut, the, his, his own people, the Jewish people, by taking a cut from everybody um, above what even the taxation would call for. So we see him. He says, I'll give a half, of, half of my wealth I give away and the other half I use to repay everybody. Well, guess what? Zacchaeus just took himself out of that high level within society and brought himself down. How does he do that? 
through the righteousness of God now being manifest, manifested in himself. He wants to restore those whom he cheated, and the others he wants to provide for the, for the poor who had nothing to begin with, basically. So we see that reversal of when righteousness comes, God's righteousness infiltrates the heart, true righteousness, the, the desire to be right with God. Now, on the next one, it says personal sanctification. This is what he calls personal sanctification. I find this couched better under the term stewardship for this particular um, uh, parable. But read 924 there. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. So what, what he's dealing with here, um, this is a parable about giving his servants the, money's, the, the money to advance the work that he has them do. So some get 10, some get 5, and, and some gets 2, I believe it is. Long story short, the one that, that has the least doesn't do anything with it because he thinks he's a harsh uh, uh, landowner and, and he just thinks he's, he's too scared to, do, to not make money for it, make a profit for it. The, the point here is, is that he ta what he's trying to point out here is you see God blessing those that see their life as a life of ministering to others, those that see their life selflessly, he gives more to them to meet the needs of the others. And I don't mean necessarily, please don't hear this as, in fact, probably the last part of this component would be an economic side of things. It's more dealing with the grace they need to demonstrate the love and care for people the way God calls us to care for people as a, as a body of believers, as a covenant community, as a kingdom of God. So you see that what God's principle is, is those who give more of themselves will get more grace from God. And they're over there saying, well, is that, is that right? And he's saying, yes, that's a principle. Give of yourself unto God, and you can't outgive God's grace unto you to continue to give to the community. Again, that is not economically. We think of that economically more than anything else. It's using an economic uh, metaphor here, a picture, a parable, but that's not what he's getting at. He's it's talking about giving unto, giving of yourself selflessly, investing in the community. So we see that change of righteousness then. We see God, God, God knows those who are being faithful, and he gives them what they need to continue to be faithful, and we can know that. Uh, okay, and then finally, and the joys, and uh, uh, Gary, I was thinking about you this morning, Gary Moss, give him a, give him a little nudge, um, sorry about that, you, I lost you for a second, I was thinking about you, you I'm sure you were just praying, um, he's, he, Gary is walking around, oh, you're laughing at my brother, <laughs> Gary's walking around this morning, and having a conversation with PJ, and he says, uh, all I'm thinking about is, uh, is, I'm in a great place because I know where I'm going. And, and uh, they were having a fun back and forth conversation with one another. Um, well, this is what we get when, the, the, and it's the joys of the new heaven and the new earth. Go ahead and read that, Jamie. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Keep going. You can, I know you got to find it, but I'm not going to ad lib. So verse 23, 30, 39 to 43, or chapter 
One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do, not, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due rewards for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So whether it's all, all flesh seeing the salvation of God, whether that's physical salvation, and, and he's talking about what, what, which would occur through Christ on, on the cross. There's a sense where the, everyone knew that. Or it's dealing with the future, looking forward to being what uh, was referred to in paradise, which ultimately I'll, we'll leave as God's presence, Pete Todd on paradise, being a little bit different than thinking of it as heaven at this particular stage, but it is in the presence of God. Um, we, we, we understand that we have that. Luke wants to make sure that that's a, in picture with his, his audience. It's a motivator of knowing what, what shall come. All right, let's look at God's plan, another theme in Luke. In Luke, God orchestrates his plan, which matches predictions from angels, Jesus, and the, basically the whole Old Testament. The plan and events related to are necessary. That You'll see that word. Uh, it has two occurrences. Or must take place. You'll see the must 22 times um, in the book of Luke, implying a divine necessity according to the plan. This has to take place. This is part of the plan. It's taking place. It will take place. In other words, God's plan relates to Jews and to the Gentiles, though in the Gospel of Luke, he is, his approach is more subtle than Acts. And I want to show you some of this, the subtlety here. Hints of the Gentile emphasis in Luke include, for example, the genealogy of Jesus going back to Adam, not just Abraham. Now, there's more theology on why that's happening, but this is one uh, perspective of it. Uh, not Abraham as in Matthew. At the Nazareth synagogue, Jesus references uh, reference to the widow of Zarephath and Nahum as the final straw. He's dealing with um, Gentiles. Jesus is po pointing out Gentile Old Testament stories. And Jesus' commending of the centurion's faith um, and also the queen of the south and Nineveh. All were dealing with Gentiles and them having faith of some sort. So it's just it's interesting that Luke is using a, more of a subtle undertone or current of um, the, the emphasis of Gentiles being included into salvation. All right, let's look at the poor. We're not to forget the poor. Oftentimes we hear the poor misunderstood or, or preyed upon in the prosperity gospel. And we don't want to go there as a people of God that we know that's absolutely wrong. Luke's gospel is known for its greater emphasis on the poor than that of other gospel, gospels. Luke also includes more references to women and sinners. Fascinating. The poor are the head of an apparent category that includes others at the margins of society. Two sample lists are the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind of Luke 14, 13, and the blind, the lame, the leopards, the deaf, the dead, and the poor of Luke 7, 22. However, it is clear that Jesus does not simply equate the poor with all who lack material goods. Oh, this is fascinating. So when you think about what, when you read the word poor in your Bible, 
Do you import just what you believe it to be the poor, the guy at the corner of the street begging for, for, for something, it's a money handout, when you come up to the stoplight? Or do you have a biblical context for the poor? I don't know where you are in that. I'm just suggesting Luke has context given to him by God on the poor. The poor are only those who are only those who depend on God and who are part of his kingdom. In addition to being economically deficient, and then let's go into that. Who's reading this? Uh, Selva, yeah. uh, you've got Luke 6.20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So we definitely see a context of they're actually blessed by being poor. Because there, there, there's a spiritual component he's speaking of. Now, that 12, 32 to 34. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasures is, that will, be, that will your heart be also. Okay. He's talking about, he doesn't want them depending upon, uh, on, or living a life that's, that's anxious because of all the things they lack. There's, there's an, an idea of the deficiency poor have in material things. But he's pointing to and correcting their, the treasure they have in their spiritual status. And, and, and also cautioning them that where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. So now 1421. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. Okay, so he's dealing with the, the, the great feast and, and the fact that there's a, a feast being held by, by uh, or for the king, by the king, if you will, and people are giving excuses why they can't come. The people who, who think they're believers, the people who are part of the covenant community are giving all these excuses. I got this to do. I got, please, I beg of you, let me not have to go because I got to take care of this. And God is, and the, the parable is pointing out, we got to be careful not to build a whole theology, but the parable is pointing out at least one component of this is the poor and the crippled and the blind may not have been so aware of or of the, the status of what was happening. And he goes, go out to them, bring them in, get them in this. I want to make sure they're in this. And so we see the value, the, 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 the not overlooking these people is one component of that this particular author, Luke, is trying to point out here, the, the value of these people. And so let's continue on. It says, so uh, in reading this, uh, the passage here, or excuse me, the handout that I've got you underneath, or after the first set of red bolded scripture, it says, Similarly, the rich are not simply those with money, but those who oppress the poor. I'm not going to go into those. I don't have time to do that. Sorry, Silva. I appreciate you being ready to, to preach that. I'm just telling you that in Luke's context, uh, context, he is dealing with people that are rich and oppressive. They have, not only are they they financially rich, but they are oppressive. And one of the ones he gives an example of is the, 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 the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man will not even allow Lazarus to eat from the crumbs of his table. 
and then they, they show up in, and later on in the, in the parable, they show up um, in uh, a kingdom picture where you have this cavity, uh, this cavern between them. You've got the, this is actually a picture of Sheol or Hades, where you have on the one side, um, the rich man is now kind of in a place where he's down lower and he's dying for some water. He's feeling the full weight of judgment of all of his. The, the fat, why is he being so severely judged? Because he didn't even uh, provide any form of blessing, any form of sustenance, any form of, of kindness to the man who was just outside his gates in act, absolute need. And so we see here the picture of now the man who was in need stands in the, in the bosom of Abraham. The idea is he's standing across the cavern. You can't cross the cavern. Um, there's no way he'd cross it. He's standing over here with Father Abraham, and he's standing to be in the bosom is to be resting your head on the chest of someone, the most safe place to be. You think of a child in a mother's arms. Where does that child rest? Right there on the, on the chest of the mom. And so you, that's a, a place of safety, a place of, of, of belongingness. And so you see the difference. And that's where that we have to recognize that those that are um, poor economically in our uh, midst but are, in fact, believers, don't look down on them. Luke is making sure we don't look down on them because economically they have less. But Luke also um, does a great job of making sure that there's two takeaways. Our author points this. Look at underneath the, uh, uh, or after I just got done reading the, or discussing the bolded red uh, scripture that right next to or right underneath the first series there under the poor, it says, the use of rich and poor with a social and spiritual slash believing component matches the Old Testament usage of these terms. In light of Luke's slash Jesus's, because Luke's is actually Jesus's, use of rich and poor Economic implications for today's world need to take this spiritual slash believing component into account. So the two major implications or thrusts that you can get for this, for us, come from the poor the passages. First deal with this. Jesus' kingdom includes all types of people, including the poor. Hence, the church should certainly seek to evangelize the poor and appreciate the, the Christian poor's gift to the church. If we took this church, we're located on Tatum, and we only headed out east towards Scottsdale, and we never tried to, to engage our community to the west as you hit 32nd Street, we would be failing as Christians because we are being biased towards those that are well off versus those that are not well off. We need to see the value of those that have less in this life right now and are trying to make it still, you know, trying to make a way in, the, in this world. My question to you is this, what kind of gifts does a economically poor Christian bring into the church if it's not monetary gifts? Anybody? Sorry, Mark, uh, I got you running. I Spiritual to... gifts and joy. Spiritual gifts, joy, they give a faith. They have to every day. They don't know if they're going to get food to, to feed their children, and they have food to feed their children. This, they have testimonies of faith that we, we don't get a chance to see because we have the material side of things you know, putting us in a place where we're blinded by our day-to-day -day need for God. 
and absolutely a spiritual component. So, I mean, the, the, what they bring in in the way of faith and all of, all of that. And God gifts every believer with a spiritual gift. There might be a, a pastor, a deacon. There might be the, the doer that, that wants to be here all the time. There might be the person that says, that, that is the encourager. Someone said brings joy. That they, this person walks in. And they, the room lights up because we, this person has a love for Jesus that is just infectious. We can't forget the poor. And then finally, let's look at the parables. This is fascinating to me. Look at the box. You've got the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You've got the total parables. There's a total of 27 in Matthew, 11 in Mark, 33 in Luke, 3 in, in John. We would expect 33 in Luke um, because Luke is the longest one. If you were going just off of length of books, it would, of Gospels, Luke would certainly make sense why there's 33. But this is what I find fascinating. Look about the unique categories. Matthew has 10 that are unique from any of the others. Mark has one, Luke has 14, and John has three. I will leave you with this, and this is, this is one that will get you thinking. Why do each of the writers use those unique parables? There has to be a reason that they want, there's something they want to convey that was not included in the others. Fascinating. If I had to, and I'm never going to go for a doctorate, I'm not interested in a doctorate, I want to just get done with my master's in divinity. If I was ever going to do that, I would do it on that. Why are each of the, uh, do each of the uh, gospels have unique parables and what are they meant to convey? Praise be to God that he does that kind of stuff. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I know I went fast and furious, and I, and I really hope that whatever was necessary to be taken, um, that you were able to, to communicate it to the individual. I pray that because it's in paper form, that they can study it and at their own leisure take a look at it and be reminded of what you are doing in and through Luke's gospel. We here, as far as I know, are all Gentiles, and none are ethnically Jews, and thus we have a, a particular appreciation of uh, Luke's desire to show Gentiles this, this historical view, this, as well as a theological view of this is the true Christian faith. This is the true faith and the true God. And we thank you that you had him write this. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.